music, even in the performing and the singing and the enjoyment of music, your proclivities can still overpower the joy. Perfectionism and all sorts of little things can just be. And as a musician, those of you who are musicians in, in some context or whatever sense, uh, you can't take your foot off the sustain pedal until the reverb of the chord has had sufficient time to settle your soul. <laughs> Otherwise, it's like, oh, it's just too much of a cut. Can't handle it. So I'm just waiting. Funny, isn't it? We can't even enjoy the enjoyable things in life without trying to not enjoy them. Turn to First Peter with me as we wrap up verse 2 today. Uh, but we will be coming back to verse 2 every week for the remainder of this time together in this letter. I'll read the first two verses and then we'll pray. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Father, as we hear these words for the sixth week in a row, Lord, help us to not let them just roll over in our minds. Help us to not hear the blah, blah, blahs or the yada, yadas of our internal voice. Father, help us to not be unsettled and thinking about other things, Lord, supernaturally this very moment. Father, would you, by your Spirit, set a Part our hearts and minds and our thoughts and our feelings for just a moment. Lord, would you make them holy in the sense that we will focus on you and meditate on you. For when we get up from the feet of Christ, from his word this morning in the assembly, as we gather together out of the promises of your word, Lord, all that which is laid upon us this very moment will still be there, but it will be different because we will have a different perspective. We will also have a reminder of a power that is purposeful and permanent. And that your promises to us, your people, Lord, are, are irrevocable. They cannot be changed. They cannot be negotiated. There's nothing that we can do to decide it's not going to be for us. Grace multiplied to us. Peace multiplied to us. This is our heart this morning as we gather together, sinful as we are, but yet righteous before you because of the righteousness of Christ for us. And we pray all these things to your wonderful, sovereign ear through Jesus, your Son. Amen. Well, I'm going to focus today on verse 2 again, specifically expanding the exegesis in this text relating to the Trinity. I'm going to pull out, out of this text, out of this little partial sentence, what exegete means to pull out the meaning out the meaning and the purpose of Paul or Peter's greeting I've been preaching out of Paul's letter so long I forgot it's either Paul or John Peter Peter's greeting to show some theological things but more importantly that not just so that you would have the knowledge of some theological things but that you would have the grounding in the person of God the persons of God I'm not even going to deal with heresy and you know, I'm not going to revisit Nicaea, even though I wrote a little article on it the other day because of somebody asked me the question. So when I get a question, I write, it, I write an essay on it. So you see some days I write three essays because I've had three questions that I felt like I needed to answer. Um, I don't, I'm not going to deal with that. I really want to focus on the purpose of this letter is that we may be able to what? You do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, and in doing so, obedience unto Christ to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength that you may love your neighbor as you love yourself. So there's a lot of little things in that concoction that we need to work on. Understanding who God is, knowing how we love him, knowing who our neighbors are, knowing how we love ourselves. And we'll see that. We'll see that. But Peter's writing here, in my opinion, according to the little sentence that he gave there, is a rich theological anchor to the rest of the letter. I've said that every week. But it's not just an anchor in the context of whose we are and what God has accomplished. It's a context to the anchor of who God is. 
the subtle revelation that we take for granted a lot of times that imagine being in a culture where you've never heard the promises of Yahweh. You didn't know about a people except these weirdos that were nomadic or enslaved that were the people of God. You, didn't, you never heard the word Mashiach or Christ or Christos or whatever language you might have uh, been born under. You never heard the name Jesus or Yeshua or Joshua. All the same word. And then all of a sudden you get this letter and as a Gentile, this wasn't written directly to you, but you get to hear this in your church, and all of a sudden you see these things. For the first time ever, you start hearing about God the Father and God the Spirit and God the Son in the same sentence. Imagine what questions must leap from your mind. Well, beloved, the outcome of this is it will show us that the whole Godhead is operative in love toward us in Christ. And the outcome, of course, is several things. that I'll, There's a lot of things, but the outcomes that I'm going to focus on this morning, according to the next verses 3 through 9, are going to be assurance, are going to be is joy, our love for others through obedience to Christ, and confidence in times of trial and suffering. I heard a different perspective this week from someone who said just in a conversation, you know, it, everybody suffers. Okay? But they made a distinction. Everybody experiences pain, but everybody doesn't have to suffer in it. I'm like, okay, a little tongue-in-cheek, a little different idea of words. And I know we're not going to escape suffering, but the, I, I think it's a perception issue. If I am experiencing this pain and suffering of a circumstance or an experience, the question is, am I going to focus on the suffering or am I going to focus on the salvation? And I thought like, wow, that, it's not like an epiphany. It's like, I know that, but where did it go? I mean, we've, we've learned in our lives, you know, we don't focus on not sinning because all we're doing is focusing on our sin. We focus on loving. In our men's meeting yesterday, we focused on the fact that we actively operate in serving, and in doing so, our lives will just naturally mold themselves into that which pleases God. And that's a short statement for a lot of discussion and talk. And the same thing is true with our personal lives. There are things that we struggle with and we battle with in our flesh lives, and we find we put more emphasis on trying to be self-deprecating and destructive to our own voice to talk to ourselves in a way that eliminates the ability to ever overcome these things rather than just focusing on what Christ has done and whose we are in Him. And it doesn't mean that you ignore the reality of conviction, that you ignore the issues that, are, that you know are not pleasing, but... Why would, we set, why would we settle in settling or, or, or going to sleep or in a pity party rather than resting at the feet of Christ? There's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. Christ isn't the little, Christ isn't the cuddle spot to where we can get away from the anguish. Christ is the, the sustenance of our lives. And through him we live a life that is abundant. Beloved, have you ever really woke up in the morning about, man, this is an abundant life. Oh my goodness, this is, I have never had such an abundant life in my life. What a life. How many times can we say life in the same idea, you know? No, we don't, we don't do that. We find ourselves grumbling. We find ourselves being thankful for small things. We find ourselves being frustrated with ourselves that we're not thankful for all things. And then we move around the, the day as we get started wishing we could just go back to bed or do something different or what have you. And then we begin to labor in our prayer life. Lord, help me pray. I'm such a worm. Step on me, God, and watch me squirm. I mean, you know, it's, and that's not original. But it's just, uh, it's just one of those things that, that I think that we do as human beings and we're not even aware of it. And the alternate of that is not just get up and fake it. We can't just get up and fake it. It's okay. God is great. You've seen the little thing from 10 years ago. You know, my family's great. and Life's great. Little girl standing on the bathroom counter. 
Everything's great. I mean, I wonder where she is now at 30. I pray that that's the same attitude. We can't fake it. That's why Peter says sometimes we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. It's inexpressible in two ways. And I'm giving you a preview of what's coming next year. It's inexpressible of two ways. One, it's inexpressible sometimes because we can't find the expression of joy in the midst of the great suffering. And secondly, it's inexpressible because there's no way to express such things because the world cannot contain it. And so the overflow of our emotions and our feelings and our thoughts have to be arrested by the foundation of that which is true. And beloved, I am not saying that to you. I'm sharing that with you. This is the daily battle that James Tippins deals with. Every single moment of the day. And I'm very aware, 90% of the time of my mind. I'm with you in this. So this... Little tiny half sentence, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for unto the obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling of His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This serves as a gateway to understanding the operational love of God the Trinity toward us, His people. This verse succinctly, I believe, encapsulates the actions of the Father, the actions of the Holy Spirit, and the actions of the Son in the life of a believer. On a continual basis, on an ongoing, it's an ongoing truth in which we stand in the presence of God, redeemed, justified, sanctified, holy, perfect, loved, beloved, all of it at the same time, all the time, forever. And so it offers a theological framework that leads to the things that I mentioned earlier, assurance, joy, the love of others, and confidence in times of pain and suffering. So here Peter sets the stage for this deep dive into the nature of God's love. And this love is not passive. It's not what God has done. As I've said, it's an act of reality. It's who God is and is what God is always doing. And it's not passive. It's actively at work and it's actively reaching out to his people in the context of the gospel, of the good report being spread, in the context of the gospel being reminded to his people, in the context of the assembly, in the context of the Lord's table, in the context of prayer and the hearing and the singing of songs, songs, hymns and spiritual songs and everything else, in the context of being reminded day by day of what God is and what he has done and what he is doing. So it's actively reaching out to you today as his child. Salvation is a promised hope that has been accomplished. It is a finished work, but it is an active, present, and forever work that will always be alive in you. So if you want the peace of the grace of God multiplied to you, you have to put that in your you have to put that in the lockbox of your heart. You have to put that there. And beloved, there's only several ways that happens. You stay continually in the reading of God's word. You stay continually connected to God's people. And you live authentically before both. You can't pretend to be what you're not. It comes out. It comes out. So we're going to look at these three areas, these three persons. Now when we think about salvation, when we think about the Trinity, when we think about God, the scripture is, is very clear. That God has revealed himself in this way through the scripture in three persons. And the persons of God are God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And I said I wasn't going to get into any kind of polemical thing today, but I mean, you know, there are many ways in which we as humans in our philosophical approach to these truths have tried to make sense of it. But the Bible is not giving us, has not given us the authority or the prescription to go and make sense of it. The Bible has said by faith we rest in the reality of that revelation. All right, so let me say that in a different way. Let me, let me rewind that and put it in words. The Bible teaches us that God reveals himself in three persons, but it doesn't teach us to figure all that out and try to figure out the mystery of it. And so we're just to rest in it. 
And in the same way, we relate to God according to the prescription of, his, of this Bible, of the New Testament letters. We relate to God and we worship God in the, me, in the way and in the manner that the Bible teaches us. We don't have to create new ways. We don't have to say, well, who am I supposed to pray to? And how am I supposed to do this? And, you know, where's the spirit working? And, you know, I remember being a kid in third, fourth grade, and I would pray at night, and I would pray to the God, I would pray to Jesus, and I would pray to the Holy Spirit. The same prayer over and over again, like they couldn't hear me. I mean, because that's, that's what I did. That's how I parsed that as a child. There's one God, three persons. I better talk to all three of them. And then it got to be, you know, by the time I was 10 or 11, I began to tell Jesus things that I wasn't going to tell the Father. And I have those conversations. And the Spirit, man, there was some... I actually asked God the Spirit one time to really give me magic powers so that my magician world would be real. It never happened. And there's nothing wrong with that. Kids, you ask God whatever you want to ask Him. You grow in that intimacy. I mean, Jesus says it. When He doesn't answer those prayers, it's because it wasn't best for you. It wasn't in the will of God for you. Because if you were a wizard... You might be mean. So let's look at this. Let's look at the love of the Trinity. And I'll just explain these as I get going. The first thing I want us to see is the love of God the Father. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I, I call that, and there are different ways in which we could call each of these three things. And scholars that are greater than I will ever be in my left pinky have established different words, but for today, for the context of 1 Peter, I feel like the terms that I have selected are not the academic terms that are the most prudent, but the intimate terms that are most obvious. So in other words, what I see initially, and the things that come to my mind initially, is what I'm sharing with you. It could change. But it doesn't change the truth of them. Terms change. But I call this electing love. Electing love. Yeah, Trey's going to check them all. Electing love. And in this electing love, it, 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 is, so, it is so misconstrued, it's so misunderstood, because we have, we have segmented salvation in our culture down to, you know, A, B, and A, B, C, and we've segmented salvation to, you know, here's God's offer, here's man's response. And, and these are decent conversations for the coffee table theologians throughout history and in some sense when nobody had a Bible but the elite and most people couldn't even read there was a necessity in those who could read to really carefully parse out what the application looked like but the rigidity just like anything else just like the Mishnah which is the Jewish law the Jewish regulations the they applied theology of, of, of Israel I mean it it messed it all up you know, it missed the point. It jumped over the beautiful intimacy. It jumped over the romance. It jumped over the love right into the fire pit of bondage. It just jumped over it like a snake pit. And so there's so much that could be said about electing love. But this reality is just something that God has chosen to do. Just like we see that, you know, we see marriage unfolding in the Bible in our culture. As we, and we'll get into this this year. But our culture has completely destroyed the picture of the gospel in marriage because of some of the foundational restrictions and things that they've put on the application of such things. We're having a conversation earlier before service, you know, about different things that we do in our home, different ways we talk, different things. You know, we've got an 18-year anniversary coming up. Robin and I are 28. Volcanars are 28. I don't know where the rest of you guys are, but, I mean, every few years you, you realize, you, how, was it, how you said this morning, you know, you marry a stranger. And in the gospel sense, we are strangers to God, no matter what we think we know about him. We are strangers to God without the redemption that comes in Christ Jesus because we are not holy we are not holy. We are not righteous. We are not perfect. doesn't mean there's not some good people that do some good things. I mean, people can have compassion and love. And we ought to have, especially believers ought to have, ought to be the epitome of that. And so what's the secret of really understanding the difference in just like a relationship versus 
a marriage that depicts the gospel is it's a daily decision to love that person actively, not with feelings, actively every single day. And those feelings then, I mean, those, uh, those act, that act of love does something. It changes something. It seeks out the other's good with our voice, with our mind, with our, with our actions. And we all fail at that. And there are seasons where we don't know that we'll ever escape the error, but God is faithful. But only Christ is the true depiction of perfection. So God chooses to love us. God's electing love through the foreknowledge of God the Father. This idea is rooted in the understanding that God's love initiates our intimacy with him. Choosing us before we chose him. Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. Even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be set apart and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as children through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This is nothing but a fulfillment of the promise that God told his people. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 8, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So the concept of foreknowledge and love and electing love by God the Father is foundational to understanding divine love. To understanding the love of God. Because when we say that God loves us and we, we relegate that love to something that God's just giddy over, that's infatuation. That comes and goes. Giddiness comes and goes. I mean, how many times have you just not liked your children? And there's little seasons of their lives where they come in the room and you're going, oh my gosh, if they come in this room right now, I'm going, my head's going to pop off. If they ask me that question, my head's going to pop off. And you've got enough sense to know not, not to take your head off and throw it at them. Ichabod Crane story there. But you don't like them. I'm sorry, kids. We love you to death, but sometimes we don't like you. How about kids? How about you kids? And we who are adults, we are, we're, one time we're kids. We didn't like our parents. But it didn't stop us from serving and loving them. But God's love toward us is seen in the action. And when Paul says in Romans 8, 1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, it goes on to show, especially with Hebrews chapter 4 and 5, when we start to see the aspect of the heart of Christ, what is the heart of God toward his children? It is not one of consequence. Listen, we're not, talking about the, we're not talking about the contingent obedient of, of, of these temporal promises of the Old Testament. We're talking about the eternal promises. If you don't work, you don't eat. Plain and simple, that's what Paul says. When you're hungry, go work for it. Go find something to do. We're talking about a love... That comes from God in such a way that is irrevocable. A love that gets nothing in return. A love that has nothing to do with anything but a promise. As he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God's love is initiating and proactive. It's a love that chooses us when we didn't have the capacity to choose Him. And it highlights that sovereign and gracious character of God the Father. Jesus shows us the love of the Father by the example of His passive obedience and that He subjected Himself to be convicted of a crime He didn't commit as an innocent. He was innocent. 
and then dying a death that he did not deserve and facing the wages of sin, which is the wrath of God, which is death for us. And at no time do we see the Scripture teaching that we are to be scared of the love of our Father. I shared with some of the men yesterday about a watered-down version of my understanding of how best to keep children in order in certain aspects of parenting. And by and large, I was overly harsh in a lot of areas. And I regret that. But the beautiful thing is, is now that, you know, as those children become adults, they'll tell you <laughs> how they felt about how you did. And, you know, I've been beat up several times by mobs of people. And uh, I think I'd rather jump into a mob of angry people sometimes than hear the truth. But the truth is so beautiful because it's so intimate. It creates a vulnerability that's absolute. When Jesus was on the cross, the expression of God the Father was absolutely, perfectly displayed when he says these words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's a narrative. That's a, a historical truth that we see in the life of Jesus. It's not prescriptive. We don't see that being any kind of theological powerhouse that something happened. We're not told the reality of what he was intending to do except to reveal his heart for the people who hated him. And without the Spirit of God, as we'll see in a minute, we would have hated him too. We'd have loved him just insofar as what our relationship with Jesus would do for us socially, financially, or emotionally. And we can, we can parse that out too and show the disciples, all of them, that are very prominent in the narratives of the Gospels. We see, we see, and even Dr. Luke's Acts of the Apostles, we see. We see how these people approached and walked with Christ. There's so much of the prophets in my mind right now, and Isaiah's there, and, and, and so much that is just begging to be unpacked. Maybe as we get into some other things, I'll unpack it again. But the beauty of what the Scripture teaches about God putting a new heart in us and finding us and embracing us. Beloved, what has happened in evangelical culture that God is this maniacal, angry being ready to zap somebody? And why in evangelistic efforts and in counseling efforts and in, and in discipleship efforts do we continually press that? If there's one thing that the human race knows, it's judgment. Because we're full of it ourselves. If there's one thing every human being on this world knows, when they have a language flowing through their brain, it is vengeance. And... We who have multiple children, we know exactly what that looks like in a child. And this kid can't walk and can't even make a complete word yet, but they will hit their sibling in the face when they take something from them. Or hit you in the face. That's vengeance. It's justice. You don't do that. Pop. We understand justice. We don't have to remind the human race about justice and vengeance. We, we got that down pretty good. We see it in the garden. We see it with the first siblings. We see it. We don't, we don't have to remind people of God's wrath so that they'll have some perspective of God's grace. Now, when the story dictates it, when the scripture shows it, absolutely. The very nature of grace is that we are saved from wrath, right? But we emphasize the other at the cost of peace. Is it peaceful? Man, when your daddy gets home, I mean, I heard that a lot, you know? When your daddy gets home, I hope daddy doesn't get home. Because we're not playing football today. You see what I mean? Man, you better, God's going to show up. You better not go to church this week. You better not pray this week. Do you want to talk to somebody who's going to judge you? God has not judged you. Listen to this, beloved. God cannot judge you. It is 
It is apart from his character. He cannot judge you. It is impossible for him to judge you. It would be wicked for him to judge you. He would be evil if he judged you because he's judged Christ in your place. You see? Until I said Christ in your place, you're like, uh-oh, Tippins has gone off the rails. But I mean, that's serious. That's, that's the point. That is the tension that needs to be built in our culture. We need to understand because if we don't understand the love of God for us in a pure sense, we are not going to actively love others in a pure sense. We are going to have, without even our knowledge, a controlling influence over the lives of other people in a way that we think it is for their good and may very well be. But what is better, to live haphazardly making mistakes together and growing or being in having an order that is not love and how about yourself it starts with you it's all about God's faithfulness God's electing love assures us of our valued place in his heart see I'm using imagery now to to establish something that I said wasn't necessarily the so but because he's revealed himself in this way we need and we can say the heart of God Jesus well I guess I could say that but the scripture teaches and actually one of the brothers said this yesterday that when David was called a man after God's own heart it was not David's identity that he chose it was said concerning him Who was David? A wicked, terrible, whiny, sensitive. Nothing wrong with being sensitive. Liar, murderer, and adulterer. And it deserved, he deserved everything that came to him and more. But God loved him. Just like God loves you. Not because of who you are or what you've done. Because he chooses to every single day. Because he has eternally loved you. In Christ. Showing you that love. Eternally. You know there's no time with God. right? Nothing ever started with him. Until he created the start of something. We are valued. It is not predicated on our merit, but His mercy. The second part. The love of the Spirit. So we are elected, we are loved by God, and electing love, foreknowledge, in the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. How is it that God, the Father, loves us in such a way and how can he approach us in such a way? Because what he's done is, by the Spirit, caused us to be righteous in his eyes. Caused us to be, and actually more of what the Son would do, caused us to be what? Set apart by the Spirit. Well, I want to I wanna read some books about that. Well, good luck. <clears throat> These are some of these things we're supposed to embrace. And honestly... I'd rather just get very poetic about it rather than try to become, I don't know, try to become sterile and clinical with it. That's the problem with theology as it is now. I mean, other than Plummer, I've never, I've never seen, uh, I mean, the Psalms is, are full of expressiveness and oaths and moans and groans and all sorts of stuff and the letters of scripture are just like I mean it's like wow and then you read commentaries and it's like it's an Ikea instruction manual for a house or worse no pictures it's terrible but sometimes I think when we think about the spirit of God we need to just breathe in pun intended we just breathe in and go, wow, let's just breathe this in. Now, when Jesus talks to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and Nicodemus comes to him and he says with great zeal, I mean, imagine this man, the Pharisee, who is the primary, the principal teacher of the Pharisees in the days of Christ, and he comes to Jesus and he is doing so under the cover of darkness for a reason. 
And the implication there is for the imagery of John's writing, the darkness and the light. And the light shines in the heart of men. The light is Christ. And Jesus says, I am the light. And he tells Nicodemus that people come to the light because they don't come to the light because their deeds are evil. He's talking about their spiritual deeds. But those who do, do so that it may be clearly seen that those deeds are carried out by God. Oh, Nicodemus, you come to me. Nicodemus says, we know all Jesus of Nazareth. I can't believe I'm saying that. Nazareth, what good comes out of Nazareth? I can't talk to you where people can see me, but I want you to understand that under this darkness, I'm confessing to you that I know that you are Mashiach. I know that you are the one that came from God. And the reason I know that is because no one can do what you were doing unless you were sent by God. And Jesus says, Armain, Armain, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. It is so. It is so. Truly, truly. Whatever you want to see in your Bible. He says, I tell you this. Unless one is born by the wind, by the Spirit, from above, they cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus was. This wasn't a, this wasn't a nice little conversation. Hey, did you see those stocks today? Yeah, man, it was a part of, you know, the index went down about 2.2%. Oh, cool. Well, hey, give me a call sometime. We'll chat about that and we'll do a little spreadsheet. Nicodemus and Jesus weren't having a spreadsheet conversation about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was speaking life into Nicodemus' ears and brain. And until the Spirit of God woke those ears and brains up, he couldn't see any of it. He was like, boo, I can't see. And the answer to somebody who can't see is not, oh, they're so dumb. Or let me explain it with my great man mind. No. It's let the Lord God, the Spirit, do the work. Lay it in there and watch what the Lord will do. And that's what, this is the way we can have peace in our evangelism. And so Nicodemus' response wasn't an articulated academic treatise. It was, what are you talking about? And he said that inside of his mind. And Jesus says, don't be perplexed. <laughs> he didn't say it out loud. He said, don't be perplexed. Don't be flabbergasted. You're smart. Are you not the teacher of all of Israel? Are you not the one who teaches every Pharisee? Are you not the one who trains every theologian that steps foot in the temple? But yet you do not understand these things. It's like the wind, man. Look at the wind. It's blowing and doing and stuff, but we can't see the wind. We can only see what the wind's doing. Until you can see, you can't, you can't see the wind. Quit trying to figure out what the Spirit of God is and who He is. Just look at what He does. He sets you apart. He opens your mind. He breathes into you life. He settles your spirit. He brings rest to your soul. How? Through the simple promises of God. If you abide in my word, and that's manifold. That's multi. In other words, it has a lot of different meanings. But the first and primary meaning is that we must be in the Bible. And then my word will abide in you. You'll bear much fruit. Paul talks about it all the time. Peter talks about it. James talks about it. John talks about it. And the letters are always about being in the Spirit, walking in a spiritual sense. A spiritual sense is not walking around with the right understanding of the Holy Spirit academically or theologically or doctrinally or whatever kind of funny words we like to use in English that never existed before English. It's not about walking in a manner that looks like other people who are actually spiritual. It's not following a, a set of rote instructions on dress or speech or, or all this kind of stuff. It's about testing the heart of the matter and knowing that what I am and what I'm doing and all the proclivities that I have and all the problems that I might have and all the mindset that I might have and all the issues that are going on in my life and every little piece of hatred and love and everything else that I'm trying to battle with, every bit of that is only possible to be, to be brought to life by the Spirit of God, so I will walk therein by faith, and I will rest therein. And I'm not going to try harder, or, or work harder, or work deeper, or any of this kind of stuff. I'm going to stop doing those things, and sit still, and know that God is God, and that is the love of God, the Holy Spirit, to set us apart. That's it. And don't ask me to repeat that, because I don't know what I just said. 
I don't. It's just a thing that we have to realize that God the Spirit moves us, grows us, brings us, teaches us. Well, the reason you're not spiritual is you're not praying to be spiritual. You know what? Romans 8 says that when I can't pray, my ah is good enough. My complaints sometimes are a prayer of reprieve. Isn't that beautiful? The Spirit of God reflects the nature of God's justifying love and that the good works that we do, including our faith and our rest and the struggles therein, is something the Spirit purposes. The Spirit's role to convict and to cleanse and to renew us and to bring us into right standing with God in our minds is where our assurance comes from. It's where our confidence comes from. And we know this. And sometimes it's evident in our lives when we don't know that. When do we finally know this? When we've come through the season of what we would even think that God had abandoned us. We come through the season of the time where we don't think we'll ever be healthy again in our mind or our body. We come through a season of wondering if our friendships and our marriages and our children and the relationships we have will ever be healed. And then one day God the Spirit reminds us, hey, you remember that? Wow. And then we get a little arrogant. Man, look what I did. I was so good. I'm just... And then God's like, whoops, you fell in all again. <laughs> I'm here. Pride comes before the fall. Paul talks about this in Thessalonians, the second letter. He says, oh, what does he say? He says, but we ought to always give thanks to you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because he chose you as first fruits. Some of the first people to know the gospel and to understand the power of the Spirit. And he says, through the sanctification of the Spirit, to be set apart by the Spirit and the believing of the truth. In Ezekiel 36. I want to preach through Ezekiel so bad. Verse 26, the prophet writes the word, the voice of God. He says, I will put, I will give you a new heart. I want you to listen to this. A new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone. That means this rocky, hard, resistible fortress. The stoicism. This independence. Oh gosh. And I will give you a heart that's alive. A heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And to be careful to obey me. This Holy Spirit sanctification is a transformative aspect of divine love it opens our eyes to see the love of the father in electing us and as we'll see in a minute to see the obedience of christ that we might also obey in like manner in love and in doing so we love god this verse that we sit here in second thessalonians 2 Underscores the Spirit's work in cleansing our conscience, in cleansing our minds, in setting apart our lives for His purposes. And God has promised this new heart, this new mind. And in doing so, we reflect on the holiness of God, we reflect on the love of God, we reflect on the purposes of God. And it's a comfort to us, and as I've already displayed, it's a challenge for us. <laughs> It's not easy because the nature of, our, of the fall is not erased. And so we can live out our faith with devotion but not fear of destruction. And let's look at this third way in which God, this God the Son, loves us. And we know this one, right? We, we get it, right? We often get the idea of God the Son. See, Jesus embodies saving love. 
saving love, salvific love, justifying love. Through his life, his death, his resurrection, he offers and secures redemption and reconciliation for God's people. John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way that he gave his son, the only one that he had, that those who are believing in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So the believing ones have everlasting life. Why? Because they're resting. They're not working to salvation. They're resting in salvation. And if we're resting in salvation because of the love of Christ and the work of Christ, which is the love of Christ, then we are able to stand bold before the throne of grace. We're able to love others in like manner, and it's, it's complicated. That's why the Bible says that we ought to be together in the assembly. This assembly, we do not need to come here with pretense. We do not need to come here with a mask on. We do not need to be strangers. At the same time, your level of vulnerability is yours. You should, you should feel free to be who you are to whatever level, in it, a level of intimacy you want to be. But you should never fear it. And when we fear intimacy, it is because, and we fear intimacy within the church, it is because we've been hurt so badly. I'm just going to be honest with you. I mean, even if it's just one time, we've got a thousand moments of awesome fellowship and awesome love and awesome stuff that people have done for us in the name of Christ. But that one person, right? That one person that comes into this uh, fellowship and uh, maybe here or maybe in the past and they say or do something to such a way that it actually destroys the very fabric of our hope and then we don't know what to do. And so everything from that point forward is, yeah, I hear that too, everything from that point forward is tainted. It's tainted. The prophet Isaiah tells us the passion of Christ that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, that through his wounds we are healed. If we have peace, we should be at peace. And the reason we're not at peace is because we fight the very fabric of that hope of the love of God. We fight against the love of God because deep down inside of us, because of the way we were raised, because of the situations that we've experienced, because of the way that we process our emotions, we are going to be jaded in how we look at the love of God. And until God the Spirit opens us up to truly see and to work through these things, then we're always going to have issues. And it's okay because these issues are part of our growing in grace. You can't escape it. But you can surely live through it. So I told you in the beginning that these three ways in which the love of God was manifest here in this text will take us through the rest of this. So when we hear, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, we need to hear it through the love of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we see, put away malice, put away deceit, put away hypocrisy, put away envy and all slander, we might say to ourselves, well, I'm not doing those things, but are you thinking those things? And beloved, I, I find myself in a lot more turmoil with what I think than what I actually do sometimes. Because sometimes the doing is easier to reconcile than the thinking. And the doing always comes from the thinking. So I don't need fuel for the next explosion. How do we do it? We taste and see that the Lord is good. Paul, Peter says it right there in chapter 2, verse 3. So I want you to see the connectivity. I want you to see... The supernatural working of this letter. This is why we know that the scripture that we have, these list of letters that we hold, are not human in their illumination. They're human in their construction. They're human. This pen, the personality of Peter. I can, I can read things. Even in the Greek, you can read. And I can tell you if it's Paul or John especially. They're easy to distinguish because of the vocabulary. I can tell you if Luke wrote it because I don't understand half the words. You see, their personalities are in there, but the message is infallible. The application sometimes is personal. We see Paul saying that. I'm telling you right now that this is what you need to do, and God has not told me to say this. I know the difference. So there's a protection there. But how do we live in the fullness of the love of God? 
this triune God, this electing love, this justifying, set-apart, set holy love, this saving and redemptive love. Well, God's electing love calls us to live with a sense of purpose and belonging, knowing that we're chosen and loved unconditionally. This should inspire us to extend the same love to others, recognizing their value as fellow humans. The love of the Spirit, we're made right with God through the Spirit. We're called by the Spirit. We're given understanding by the Spirit. We're called to live holy by the Spirit. And this is not a burden, but a joyful response to love others as we have been loved. And then the love of Christ. We embrace the sacrifice that Christ has given us with gratefulness, with thankfulness. And then in turn, we ought to have a life committed, committed, listen to this, to living out a reflection. This is from two weeks ago. A reflection, a mirroring of the attitude and the mind of Christ. This should compel us to share the story of this love with others. The good report. What does it bring? I gave, it brings a lot, but i got four things that I want to focus on throughout the remainder of the teaching in First and Second Peter. I want to focus on assurance. I've already said these twice. This is the third time, and now I'm going to unpack them very quickly in closing. Joy. Love of others, loving others, and finding confidence in suffering and pain. Assurance. What is it? Being certain of something. Being certain of something. We can be certain of the love of God. We can be certain. Assurance comes from the unbreakable bond of love between us and God. Through the sacrifice of Christ. I like to envision it this way as like a father or a mother would hold the hand of a child very tightly or even pick them up and carry them in a crowded place or a place of danger. You know, the old cliched wooden plaque thing from the 70s or wherever it was, the footsteps in the sand type thing, you know. The two sets of footprints and now the one set of footprints and it's God carrying us. I mean, it's hokey because we've seen it a thousand places and it, it's lost its punch, but that's not so far from reality in the simplicity of it. Remember, Christ says that faith as a child is what's most precious and most powerful. But Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 38 and 39. A verse that in my 14th year of life became so powerful. I became obsessed with this reality. Almost to the point of warrior-like confidence. To the point I would do and approach ridiculous circumstances with almost, not hubris, with idiocy. But I'm convinced of this, that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor the things present, nor the things to come. And of course, depending on what you know, principalities, rulers, right? Things present, things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing created can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And there's a hee-yaw and a kick and a punch behind that. Nothing. And you've heard Pastor Trey say it. You've heard me say it. You've heard Pastor Jesse say it from this pulpit over and over again over the last 12 years. God himself can't separate you from his love for you. Because God is unchangeable. And I've got, I've got some friends and family who, who would disagree with that, and they are in turmoil. They literally, by the, what they order when they go out to eat food at a restaurant, contemplates whether or not it would make God angry. That's abuse. And I pray that you're not bringing spiritual abuse upon you, and if you've ever been spiritually abused by this pulpit or any other, I am sorry. I know that that is terrible, and it affects every aspect of your life. And we'll make it right. God's electing love gives us assurance to know his love is secure. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we want in everything? We want to know when we wake up in the morning that those who love us and that those we love are there. And you know what? That's not always the case, is it? And it's out of our control, but... When everything else is falling apart, that love that God has for us does not end. The assurance of our salvation is also there. Now let's look at the second part, joy. 
Joy is not a fleeting emotion. Joy is not happiness. Joy is not confidence. Joy, as Peter will see in, in chapter 1 there in a little bit, and talk about verse 8 and 9 soon. I'm going to teach all of that next week, and then we're going to break it down into several sections. But joy is, is sometimes inexpressible, as I've already said. Sometimes it's inexpressible because we can't, find, we can't find it, but we know it's there. There's a resolve of joy in the inner part of our being, our DNA, if you will, our heart, mind, soul, gut, or whatever era or epoch you might be in in history with language. And we just can't find it, even though we have it. And then the second part of that inexpressible joy is the fact that sometimes we don't know how to express it. We know it's there, but we just don't have words because the love of God is so foreign in the comparison of every other metaphor that's ever been given to us, living or imaginary. What's a living metaphor? Marriage, relationships, romance, children, those things. Pets even. Our love for nature, looking at beautiful things. Our love for music. I mean, it's so, it's so weak in comparison. Sometimes we just don't know how to express it. Psalm 16 Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Consider the joy of a reunion with someone you love deeply. This joy mirrors our true experience with our Father, with our Son, with His Son, and with the Spirit. So we have joy. We also have the power and the understanding of loving others, which is obedience, which is not burdensome, which is also loving God. 1 John 4, 11 and 12 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, and if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Love is a natural response Loving others is a natural response to comprehending God's love for us. But I will take that a step further in saying without the Holy Spirit, it will never happen. So the natural response of love comes through the supernatural power of God's love. Sort of like a ripple effect. <clears throat> I mean, think about it. what are we doing? If we, like, drop a rock or, you know, we used to take the sand, these big mud ball, you know, when they'd harrow things at the pond as kids. and You'd skip rocks, but there was nothing greater than throwing a piece of clay about that big into a pond, especially if your brothers were close to the edge. And it goes, and it comes up like 10 feet, and they got mud and dirt and, like, flesh-eating bacteria. You're like, yeah, brotherly love. You didn't push them in. They were standing too close. Not your fault. Shouldn't have stood too close. I didn't see you there. I mean, you know, whatever excuse you give your parents as you're being disciplined. But what happens when that hits the water? The water moves and moves. And the physics behind that is fascinating. It's, it's fascinating to me. And then across the way, even if it's almost undetectable to any instrument, the ripple of that plunge hits the shore on the other side. Even if it's not noticeable. And the creatures that live in there, they feel the movement of the water. They're very sensitive to these things. And, 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 and our love for others is exactly like that. We don't have to have grand gestures. We don't have to have, um, you know, huge ministries. We don't have to be like the missionary of missionaries. We just need to start with ourselves and then we need to branch out into our homes and begin to do small things. Small ways. And eventually when everybody is loving accordingly, <laughs> one day you're going to get the rest of this because Trey's going to continue to preach it. But we see that that is the point of maturity. That the whole body grows up Immaturity in love into, head, into the head who is Christ. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about this functional, practical holiness and all these little nuanced ways of delivering life every day on a silver platter to God. It's talking about loving one another in a real tangible, simple sense. So this chain of reaction inspires other people. 
And it illustrates how we can embody the love of God in the world around us. And beloved, we are called to love the very people who hate us. And I'm going to be very candid. I had this conversation with a brother on Tuesday. I am honest for the first time about this because I didn't see it in me. I get excited and almost giddy when I think about loving people who hurt me and want to destroy me because it puts hot coals on their heads. And that's sinful. But there's a little piece of me that goes, when I know someone is just like talking trash about me and then I see them and I have that little invisible sweat and you go, mm, I just want to go. I mean, you know, I'm not going to tell you those things anymore, but you just, you want to just get real sometimes, but instead the Spirit of God says, why don't you just bless them? Why don't you just buy their meal? Why don't you just go over there and tell, put your hand on their shoulder and tell them you love them and genuinely pray for them? There's this little bit of me. You go, he's burning. It's killing him. And that's not right. But being honest is the point, right? Because after a while, you get to where you're actually seeking to love these people and it doesn't make you giddy that because God transforms their heart. And then you're like, ah. Oh. So when you hear me say that sometimes I'm like Jonah, that's what Jonah is. So before you crucify me, I'm like a prophet of the Bible. Get over it. <laughs> Loving others. And the last thing we'll talk about today is confidence in times of trials. James chapter 1, verse 2, 3, and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness needs to have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, our confidence during trials is rooted in the knowledge that they are not pointless, but they are used by God to grow us in our faith, And the image to me, and I love art, I love art of antiquity, and more recently in the last year or so, I have really begun to just press into the sculpting world. I think that is fascinating. Looking at these sculptors of antiquity, who all they had was just like, they didn't have sandblasters and roto zips and all that, I mean, just tools, just hammers and chisels and how many blows and hard knocks and breaking off big chunks of things, but that's, that's sort of how it is in life with the, with the Lord. We have confidence in our times of trials. And every hard blow, every chip, every big chunk, we go, that'll never heal. God is molding it to something better. When I was 13, 14, my mom gave me this puzzle, 500 pieces of an Oreo cookie stack with some milk. And I finish it, and there's a piece missing. I'm like, what the? Well, this is trash. We found the piece. We framed the thing, and now I don't even know where it is. So I've been looking at eBay to buy another. Why? Just because that's what I do. Nostalgia. But I started to think about that and think that sometimes when things fall apart, sometimes when we experience pain and the pieces break off, we think we've got to keep those pieces for future. We've got to find a way to make it something as good as it was. But an ultimate reality in the economy of grace is that God is chipping those things away in a sense that even if we do put them back together, there's going to be pieces that are missing or pieces that are broken. There's going to be something that's not perfect. And that is part of the joy of the perfection of the love of God with us in every season of life. We don't have to have it perfect. We don't need to go back the way things were. God is creating something new out of the chaos. And I know that sounds weird. I know that sounds deeply mystical because it is deeply mystical but if we believe the truths of the bible and we see the we subject ourselves to the doctrine taught therein and we know that these things are true and the spirit of god has awakened us to these things then we can carry that awakening we can carry that illumination we can carry that revelation to every aspect of our lives and we can have confidence to know that no matter what we see with our physical eyes and i'm ahead because this is what peter's going to talk about next week listen to this let me just read 3 through 9 and then we're going to pray. Here we go. Let the word of God be, be done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
According to His great love and mercy, He has caused us to be born alive again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Unto an inheritance that is ours, that is imperishable, that is unfading, that is undefiled, and it's kept in heaven, guarded. That is you who are guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you have joy. In this you have confidence. In this you have assurance. But for a little while, if necessary, you are going to be grieved by various trials. You're going to have some chips knocked off. You're going to have some problems. So that the tested genuineness of your faith and faith. Oh, faith is more precious than gold. Gold in and of itself as precious as it is. It melts into nothing with the right heat. It perishes. But faith does not. Faith. Test the genuineness of your faith that it may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor of the revelation of Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. And he goes on to say, and this salvation, the prophets and the angels longed to see it. And now you have it. So look at yourself. Through the love of God and the eyes of Christ. And be who you are. Let's pray. Father, I have no words. And I don't know what you will do in each individual life with the teaching of 1 Peter. But I know what you're doing in mine. And I'm thankful. So as we take the table today, Lord, let us remember this love, and let us remember our love for one another because of it. In Christ's name, amen.